the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show on this Wednesday. A reminder that the next hour is the male-female hour. Walking into my studio brought me a glimmer of hope in this dark period of world history, not only American history. I saw more unmasked outside people, people outside, than previously. And in each case, uh, I try to thank them because reason is rare. Anyway, I have uh, an esteemed guest. Man, I've respected his work is magnificent. Neil Ferguson, renowned historian, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Brand new book out actually yesterday, and it is titled Doom, D-O-O-M, The Politics of Catastrophe. Neil Ferguson, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Great to be with you, Dennis. Thank you. Sweet of you to say. And, uh, of course, thank you for your PragerU videos. They're just terrific. So uh, this, uh, this is very exciting, a book on the subject of the politics of catastrophe coming from you. <laughs> That's, I think it's what the doctor ordered. Oh, I take that back since my respect for doctors has declined. <laughs> I take back that metaphor. <laughs> All right. What is uh, what is the thesis of your book? Well, the thesis of my book is that we have to keep uh, disasters in perspective. Uh, we've certainly uh, lived through a disaster. That that is uh, an appropriate word to use uh, when talking about COVID nineteen. Uh, but it's by no means uh, the biggest disaster uh, in uh, world history. Uh, in terms of the share of the world's population. Uh, that have been killed, it's on a par with the 1957-58 influenza pandemic, which a surprisingly small number of people even remember. Uh, compared with uh, the world wars, it's, uh, it's really a relatively modest uh, disaster, uh, closer to the Korean War than to the world wars. And if you compare it to the really great disasters in history, like let's take the Black Death, which swept uh, Eurasia, uh, in the 14th century, it's it's kind of a rounding error compared with that, because you know we're talking about a not point not 0.04 percent of the world's population in this disaster, compared with about a third of the world's population in the Black Death. So we have to keep this in perspective, and I don't think we've done a good job of that. And that's why I wrote this book to try to get us to, to be a little bit more realistic in, in assessing the threats that we face, because there will be other disasters, uh, and they won't be uh, exactly like this one. We, we therefore, I think, need to change our mindset and learn some lessons from the things that we got very wrong last year. Give me some examples. Well, uh, last year, 
when it was obvious, and it was pretty obvious in by the second week of January that, that something wicked was coming this way, uh, we could have acted a lot more swiftly uh, to limit uh, the threat. The Taiwanese did that. The South Koreans did that. Uh, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, completely failed to make testing available in the early phase of the pandemic when it might have really been uh, of, of use. There was no attempt by the big tech companies uh, to take advantage of the vast amounts of data they have by creating a proper contact tracing app, which was something the Taiwanese and the South Koreans did. Uh, and as for uh, isolating people who were infected, we made an absolutely pathetic effort at that. People were pouring in to uh, U.S. airports from China uh, right uh, uh, through January, and uh, and flights were even leaving Wuhan itself until January the 23rd. So we we failed to do what the uh, epidemiologist Larry Brilliant famous, famously argued you should do when a pandemic begins, which is early detection, early action. Uh, and we know that we failed because Taiwan succeeded. And, and let's face it, uh, Taiwan never had to lock down as a result. And if you want to know how many people died of COVID in Taiwan, which is right next to China, the answer is 11. So we, we could have done so much better. And then, Dennis, once we'd screwed up January, February, and the first half of March, we then proceeded to learn the wrong lesson from Asia. We decided we would copy the People's Republic of China and do drastic across-the-board social and economic lockdowns, uh, which had the effect of cratering the economy uh, and causing all kinds of disruption, the consequences of which we'll be living with for many years. So I think we made a fundamental error there, too. It's an incredibly indiscriminate way of controlling the spread of the virus. I'm not saying we should have let it run wild, just to be clear for your listeners. It wasn't like we should do nothing. But we didn't need, I think, to do such uh, as a drastic thing as happened in California. Uh, I, I mean, I remember realizing they had lost their minds when they closed the public parks and the beaches. And it was it was madness because you could see already at that point this disease did not really spread outdoors, uh, that it was an indoor transmitted uh, virus that was obvious from the, the science that was being published at that time. And yet the public health officials in California decided it would be smart to lock us in our own homes and then prevent us from getting outdoor uh, exercise. So the, the craziness has been uh, just a, ca- a catalog of, of disasters and bad decisions. I, I could I could go on, but I'll leave it there. Well, they did say that uh, going outside was fine if you were protesting against racism. Right. And one of the stranger episodes of 2020 was that in the midst of a pandemic, certainly one of the worst since the 1950s, uh, we suddenly had vast nationwide protests in hundreds of different locations against uh, police violence. Now, the, the Latin expression non sequitur comes to mind. It seemed like a strange time to have that debate in the midst of, uh, of a public health uh, emergency, but we did. And then what was even more surreal was that people who had been previously opposed to any kind of gathering, even quite small gatherings, uh, were suddenly entirely fine with the very large gatherings of people protesting uh, against the, the police and, and, by the way, protesting on distinctly spurious grounds, uh, given the relatively small uh, number of incidents uh, in uh, in which the, the police use 
lethal violence against unarmed black suspects. But we'll leave that aside. I think it's fair to say that uh, it made no sense uh, to encourage or at least uh, tolerate those protests, given the guidelines that had already uh, had already been issued uh, and which seemed to apply to everybody else except the Black Lives Matter protesters. I wrote uh, in in April of last year that this was the greatest mistake in world history. I made it clear I wasn't saying the greatest evil. Clearly, there were there were greater evils, but I, I thought it was the greatest mistake. In and I want you to comment on Sweden. Do you think Sweden? was the one country in the West to have handled it more properly? I think it would be wrong to say that Sweden did a brilliant job because uh, a number of the mistakes that were made in other countries were made in Sweden too. For example, they didn't protect the elderly in care homes, and so they got a significant number of avoidable deaths uh, there. Uh, However, they were right, I think, to say that you could control uh, the disease with uh, less drastic measures than than lockdowns. Uh, That's to say uh, what in Sweden happened was that uh, public gatherings were were limited, concerts and that kind of thing, uh, and there was uh, social distancing, but there wasn't a a lockdown. So the economic uh, uh, impact was distinctly less. Uh, I don't think the poster child is, is Sweden, though, because... Ultimately, I think the real success stories were, were countries that I mentioned already, Taiwan and South Korea, which, which dealt with this problem in a smart way. And I want to just address one issue that often comes up when, when one discusses this, you know, their use of, uh, of technology and particularly their use of contact tracing so that they were quickly able to find out when an infected person had been in, in contact with other people. I heard again and again last year from the big tech companies as well that we couldn't do this in the United States because it would be a violation of our civil liberties. And I thought that was wrong for two reasons. One, because in Taiwan they'd been very careful to make sure uh, that the kind of data that they used was anonymized and couldn't be used for any other purpose. I mean, they, they have thought about this issue because they care a lot about their liberties in Taiwan. After all, they are threatened by the People's Republic of China on a daily basis, but also because being locked in your own home under house arrest, as people in California, New York, and many other states were, is hardly a triumph of civil liberty. And if the choice for me is between having some contact tracing that works that, and being locked great. in my own home, yes. I'll, I'll take the tra- I'll take the contact uh, tracing. That's, that's a very interesting point. Back in a moment with Neil Ferguson. The book is up at my website. Hi, Dennis Prager here again with a message for anyone struggling with pain. Of course, I want you to know about Relief Factor, the 100% drug-free supplement that tens of thousands are now taking every day. I take it every day. I like being out of pain. But I know you may be skeptical. I certainly was. Then I kept hearing about all the people, including my wife, who were no longer in pain. So I decided to give it a try. In fact, listen to Janice's story. I was skeptical at first. But because of the pain that I was having when I would uh, substitute teach and have to climb stairs, so I have lower back, hip, and even knee pain. And after about three weeks, I found that I could climb stairs pain-free. But it wasn't only pain-free. I could do it step over step without holding on the railing. I'm really happy. It's, it makes me feel like I'm young again. That's relieffactor.com or call 800-500-8384. Eight hundred five hundred eighty three eighty four. 
My guest is Professor Neil Ferguson, major historian, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. His new book is Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. So there's a caller from Cleveland who is saying that it's somewhat unfair to compare the deaths of COVID to the deaths of other things that you mentioned in light of the fact that this was only one year and they were many years. Any comment? Well, you can calculate it on uh, on an annual basis, if, if you like. Uh, I mean, most of the big uh, respiratory pandemics uh, were really two-year affairs. That was true of 1918-19, uh, 57-58, and it'll be true of, of, of COVID, which will be remembered as the pandemic of 2020-21. to 21. And when you do a, that comparison, it kind of works out pretty clearly uh, 1918-19 was far, far worse, uh, covered a similar time frame. Like our pandemic, it came in waves, uh, but the uh, the total death uh, numbers were far, far higher. Uh, I mean, if you look at the global mortality in 1918-19, it was nearly 40 million, which would translate into 160 million in our time, uh, whereas we're currently looking at death toll of, of over 3 million. Uh and uh, if you look at 57, 58, the death, global death toll was somewhere between 2 and, and 4 million if you scale to our population. So I think it's the much better point of comparison. And the, the, the problem was that a great many people last year, uh, including someone with a very similar name to me, an epidemiologist called Neil Ferguson at Imperial College London. We're well aware. I, I felt bad for you. I, it was good that my parents gave me the Gallic spelling N I L L, or I got even more hate mail than usual. But the other Neil Ferguson <laughs> basically talked last March like we were facing 1918-19. He said two million Americans, 2.2 million Americans would die if we didn't lock down, and I think that was wrong. And I said it was wrong at the time. I said I don't think it's that bad. I don't think the virus is that deadly, uh, and I think this is uh, this is overkill. And it's interesting that the other day that same Neil Ferguson, N-E-I-L Ferguson, said in an interview that uh, he was glad that the Chinese had done a, a drastic lockdown because that kind of gave uh, Western countries permission to do the same. So we were kind of unwittingly uh, copying what the Chinese Communist Party was doing. And I, I think that was a, a huge blunder. We should have been copying Taiwan, uh, which got this right. But... But Taiwan was basically being ignored by the World Health Organization at that time. Taiwan, as far as they were concerned, didn't exist because they were so in hock to their uh, uh, their friends in Beijing. Uh, so I, I, I do think the comparisons are valid. I think when we do the comparisons, we can see that we weren't facing a 1919 scenario. We were looking at something much closer to 57-58. And as uh, older listeners will recall, in 1957-58, there were no lockdowns, no school closures, minimal uh, increases in public spending, and the economy barely felt the pandemic. So I will offer you some of my uh, theories, and I would like you to to say what you think about them. As I always tell my guests, I am completely comfortable with the guests disagreeing. I think that the closing of schools for as long as we have uh, has been criminal. Your reaction? I agree. And incidentally, so does uh, a great liberal journalist Nicholas Kristof, who, who wrote this in his New York Times column not so long ago, we will, we will see that a generation of kids in public schools have, 
have been deprived of a year of education with with lasting consequences. And I think it was uh, a shocking uh, abdication of responsibility by the teachers' union not to prioritize school reopening. Private schools reopened. It was very possible to, to reopen a school. Um, and they were the ones who, who didn't really need to because the kids had laptops and iPads and could do distance learning. So we know it was possible to reopen schools. Uh, and I think it was indeed criminal and will have terrible consequences, not least for inequality in America, because it's, our education system was doing a pretty poor job for poor kids already. But shutting them out of school for a year, oh, this is going to have very, very negative consequences. So on that, we agree. Well, uh, I'm glad, uh, even though it's very painful, that subject. When you say we'll have consequences, I fully agree. Unfortunately, we will not have just consequences, as in justice. The teachers' unions and the teachers will pay no price. That's right. And indeed, they will continue to enjoy disproportionate power in American politics, not least in in California. Uh, I'm beginning to think, Dennis, that the the American Teachers Union are kind of where the National Union of Mine Workers were in Britain in the mm-hmm. 1970s, mm-hmm. an overmighty and malignant force that ultimately will have to be confronted, uh, as Margaret Thatcher confronted the, the British trade unions. And until that happens, this country is going to have a kind of ball and chain around its its leg, because how can we flourish as a nation if, if education is increasingly dysfunctional if it's happening at all. And we haven't even spoken about the plague of wokeism. I mean, we, we didn't have just one plague in 2020 to 21. We had a plague of the mind as well, which is this lunatic ideology that masquerades under, uh, under slogans like anti-racism, an ideology which is, in fact, deeply illiberal and hostile to American values. That plague has actually infected more people uh, than COVID-19 and, uh, and may well end up doing even more damage. Well, I didn't know you'd say that, but that's exactly uh, what I have been saying. Back to the uh, epidemic or pandemic. Overwhelmingly, I have followed this avidly and very seriously. Overwhelmingly, those who died of it were people who were within a year or two of death in any event, I know that sounds callous, but that's society has to make decisions based on who is being hurt. Children were not being hurt. That's right. Eighty percent of of people who uh, who died uh, were uh, were people uh, over the age of sixty five, and the uh, further up you go the age ladder, the uh, higher the mortality. Uh, uh, the percentage of, of people who, who were uh, who, who, who died of COVID in younger age groups was tiny. Uh, right, and yet we we lock down young people. I, I, it, it's it's that's part of this criminality that we're both we're both referring to. So in that case, it's the teachers' unions and their disproportionate malevolent influence. What about the the medical profession? Did it distinguish itself? Well, you were. Uh, beating up on doctors a moment ago, and I, I wouldn't want to do that. My dad was a doctor, and I, I know many doctors have been doing their utmost to, to, to a good job in this incredibly difficult time, and it's been an exhausting time for people in uh, in hospitals, uh, particularly uh, at the peak uh, back in the spring and then again over the Thanksgiving and, uh, and holidays. I, I, I have much more uh, of a of bone to pick with public health 
officially. Yes, okay. Uh, that, well, they're doctors. We'll be back in a moment. Neil Ferguson's important book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, is up at DennisPrager.com. He's a phenomenon, Adam Carolla. One, one of the gifted people that I have known. It's, it's rare to meet gifted people because gifts are rare. Many people with great insights, great character, I mean, all, all these things. But he has the gift of seeing things in a way that others don't as clearly see them. And presents his autopsy in a funny way, really funny way. So the it's a very popular video. So I want to thank Neil Ferguson, who has uh, had to go. And I, I take from what he said, among other things, a reinforcement of my belief that the great criminality of 2020, the great, not criminality, it is criminality, but the great damage, that's the word, the damage of 2020-2021 is the woke damage, the left's damage. Whatever term we use, it's so funny, politically incorrect, woke, they're, they're all euphemisms for left. Notice that? Is there anything politically incorrect that's on the right? No. Anything woke on the right? No. Call, call it what it is. It is the left destruction because it destroys whatever it touches. Kids didn't go to school for years. That people will send their kids back and still have respect for the teachers' unions is really distressing. The University of California and California State University have announced that you cannot attend classes this coming semester if you haven't been vaccinated. I don't even know why that's legal. These are public universities. This is only the beginning of what will be demanded if this is allowed to hold. Doesn't it show that there's something fraudulent in in at least the presentation of the effectiveness of the vaccine? If you're vaccinated, why do you give a damn if the next guy's vaccinated? The convoluted nonsense, I mean the drivel, it's like men give birth. Oh, but you're not really fully immunized. Really, that's the first vaccine that I heard of that really doesn't fully immunize you. And how many people doesn't it fully immunize? What percentage of those who got the vaccine? 1%, 3%, 5%? And of the 5% that it doesn't work with, what percent of those will die? So we're talking about an infinitesimally small number of people for which we are like sheep walking to the slaughter. The the University of California cannot make that demand. Harvard can because it's a private institution. But it gives you an idea of the idiocy that runs Harvard. Who the hell are you to tell me what medicine I take? 
I thought the left believed that uh, uh, you, you should be free to do what you want with your own body. Wasn't that the, isn't that the whole argument about abortion? Don't interfere with a woman's uh, control over her own body? What happened to that notion? So you can, you, the, the irony is, this is your body, the vaccine. The fetus is not your body. <laughs> the whole thing is convoluted. You should be free to destroy another body, but you, you are not free to do what you want with your own body. That's a fact. I'm, I, I, it's, it's astonishing what is, people get away with. What if they, will they demand a flu shot next year as well? Why not? People die of the flu. Not a few. And the, 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 the people least needing a vaccine for COVID are young people. The percentage of young people dying from this is is, is tiny, is is almost negligible. So why are they doing this? Well, one answer is because they can. The other is because they are afraid. One eight Prager seven seven six eight seven seven two four three triple seven six. Here's a great example of how much the New York Times lies. The New York Times is a lying organization. Its purpose is the same as Pravda was for the Communist Party. New York Times today. Tennessee lawmaker is criticized for remarks on three fifths compromise. This is an astonishing story. So listen to the first paragraph. First paragraph. New York Times. The three-fifths compromise, an agreement reached during the negotiations in 1787 to create the United States Constitution, found that for the purposes of representation and taxation, only three-fifths of a state's enslaved people would be counted toward its total population. Here comes the lie, pure, unadulterated lie, like snow is green. It is regarded as one of the most racist deals among the states during the country's founding. Why is it a lie? Because it was an anti-racist deal. That's why. Wow. I'm I'm telling you, I... I'm stunned. The purity of the lie, the, usually when they lie, it's a drop more subtle, like the two-year lie of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, for which, of course, they've never apologized. Anyway, I had an author on who just document, wrote a whole book of New York Times lies. Let me put it to you this way. Between the New York Times and Donald Trump, Donald Trump is a much greater truth teller than the New York Times. All right? That's that's the state that we are in. Never Trumpers would, of course, differ. And Democrats would differ. Fully acknowledge that. I have a pretty good track record, however, over 35 years of broadcasting, of telling you the truth. 
So let me explain to you why it was anti-racist. The southern states wanted all of their black residents, I won't say citizens even, residents, namely slaves, to be considered for purposes of representation. To this day, how many representatives does a state have in the House of Representatives is dependent upon the population of the state. So the higher the population, the more the representatives in the House of Representatives. So southern states wanted to count blacks, not because they liked blacks, but because they wanted a greater number of representatives. Why did they want that? So that they could help spread slavery. So the North didn't want slaves counted at all. They wanted it to be zero, not even three-fifths of a person. So they compromised on three-fifths, so that, in fact, the southern states would not get full numbers in order to get more people in the House of Representatives and thereby spread slavery. That's, that is it. We have, by the way, a wonderful video by a professor of political science, Professor Carol Swain, who is herself black, Why the Three-Fifths Compromise Was Anti-Slavery. That is the title. It is up at PragerU. And the New York Times describes the Three-Fifths Compromise as racist. First paragraph in this article where the Tennessee representative, the Tennessee, the member of the Tennessee State House, exactly said, apparently, what I did. Every day I bring to you the lies of the left, because truth is not a left-wing value. This is a classic example. I wonder what Brett Stevens thinks of this piece. People say, uh, I get this question a lot, so if you could have lunch with anybody, who would it be? And I always answer my friends, my wife and my friends. I, I don't have anybody, I mean, basically, I'm in a very, very lucky position. I could have lunch with just about anybody. But it's not the way I think, and I'd rather be with just the people I'm closest with. But I would like to have lunch with Brett Stevens, which I could, incidentally, because we are, in fact, friends, except that I don't want to put him on the spot. He wrote another piece that, uh, did you, the latest piece he wrote, and what was it on again? I read it. I mean, here I am asking what the, what was the subject of Brett Stevens? This is a columnist of the New York Times, the only, the, the, the only real conservative at this time. And, oh yes, leading the country to a permanent decline. How the, the, the all these trillion dollar policies are ruining the country. Do you know that there were over 3,000 comments? That was, that's one of the highest sums, numbers of comments I've ever seen on any article anywhere. So uh, he, he is the only person really saying the truths about society there. So I, I, that, if I said to him, Brett, do you know how much the, the Times lies? What is he going to say to me? So 
I wouldn't do that to him. There are you have to know how how to talk in private. I mean, in public, this is the New York Times. But I I wouldn't give him a hard time for writing for them. But it's hard to believe he is not suffering cognitive dissonance. Writing for a lying left wing paper. He's not lying. He's writing, excuse me. He's writing for a lying left-wing paper. I thank God that he writes there, to be honest. I think he's doing the country a national service. Anyway, now you know what the three-fifths compromise was. It was anti-slavery. And the New York Times, in the first paragraph on on the piece, on this news item, calls it racist. One of the most racist deals among the states during the country's founding. Well, my friends, I'm Dennis Prager. New York City schools cancel Columbus Day for Indigenous Day. And Juneteenth is now a holiday. Yeah, New York Post. New York City schools have canceled the Columbus Day holiday, replacing it with an Indigenous Peoples Day, while also making Juneteenth a school holiday and getting rid of snow days altogether. What does that mean, getting rid of snow days? They've got an agreement with God that there not be snow? That's uh, true with the advent of global warming. That is a very fine point. City Department of Education called October 11th Indigenous Peoples Day. As my colleague, the producer of this show, pointed out in sending out this particular article, there will be a generation that never heard of Columbus. There will be a generation that never heard of Jefferson, let alone Adams. Unless they go to Prager U. Or, or a handful of other places. Wow. Flagging the beginning and end dates for the school year as well as winter and spring recesses, but not the big changes within a tweet. The move, which was announced, however, in a press release to education beat reporters, officially cancels for school kid recognition what remains a federal, state, and city holiday on the second Monday in October, although the Indigenous Peoples holiday will give students and teachers the same day off. Well, in another first, the schools will be closed on June 20th in observance of Juneteenth, which celebrates the day in 1865 that black slaves in Texas were informed of their freedom. Okay. That's that's what's happening. No more Columbus Day. You know what it means? You have to understand the issue is not Christopher Columbus, the individual. We celebrate Columbus Day because we celebrate the creation of Western civilization on this continent. The left doesn't. The left doesn't celebrate the creation of the West on the European continent. The West doesn't celebrate the creation of Western civilization. Beethoven's Third Symphony is not one of the greatest works ever written. 
There's always Indonesian gamelan music. Wrote the New York Times music critic years ago. I put him in my book. Still the best hope. We're battling for the West. It's not less than that. Mm-hmm.